I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Psalm 73. This will not be the passage that I'll be preaching from, but I believe it does a masterful job of setting the table to prepare us what I hope and pray by God's help will be a feast for our souls. Psalm 73. And I think if you're wondering where I'm going with this, I think when we begin our message this morning, you'll see the connection between this text and what we'll be examining this morning. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people returned to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is their knowledge with the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, Behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, I was troubled in my sight, or troublesome in my sight, until I came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places. Thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel, thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. 
Amen. Let's pray. Or Father, we see how easy it is for even godly people to be sidetracked, to be led away by the charms of this life. Indeed, the, the riches of the wicked, how alluring they may be, how deranging to our minds, how they blur our focus, indeed, how they blind our eyes. Lord, with you is great blessing. Indeed, help us, any of us in this room this day, whose hearts may be charmed by the things of this world, who may be allured to leave the paths of righteousness and to walk upon the wide path that leads to destruction, that they may come to this sanctuary and hear things spoken from your word that would rescue them from the pathway that leads to perdition and plant their feet firmly in Christ upon the narrow road that leads to life. So Lord, hear us, we pray, as we consider our own lot in this world, that Jesus Christ might be our all in all, that he might be our portion in this life and forever. For we pray this in his name, amen. amen. Today we return to our study of the Ten Commandments. We pondered the meaning and practical application of the first nine words of the Decalogue. And this morning, we begin to open up the tenth word. We noted in an early message in our series that God's commandments presume the sacredness of crucial aspects of life live before God and with other people. The first commandment regards the sanctity of God's being, that there is to be no other God before Jehovah, no other God with Jehovah, Jehovah alone. The second commandment regards the sanctity of worship. We are to worship God only in the way that he has appointed in his word. We're not to bring to him creative worship, we're not to bring to him the work of our hands, but to bring to him the teaching of the, his word. Third commandment regards the sanctity of God's name. That we are not to use his name emptily, or to use it in an unworthy way. Indeed, not to use it for a curse word. The fourth commandment regards the sanctity of God's day. The whole day belongs to God. Not just the morning, but every seventh day, that is every eighth day for us, belongs to God in his entirety. The fifth commandment regards the sanctity of God-ordained authority. We saw something of this in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are to give due respect to authority. The sixth commandment regards the sanctity of life. That life is to be nurtured and protected because human life is made in the image of God. The seventh commandment regards the sanctity of sex or of marriage. 
Indeed, we are to guard the union that God created to be holy and exclusive. The Eighth Commandment regards the sanctity of private property. We are to respect what belongs to our neighbor. The Ninth Commandment speaks of the sanctity of truth, that it must be cherished and it must be defended. Well, the focus of the Tenth Commandment is the sanctity of the heart. My son, give me thy heart, is the heart and soul of the Tenth Commandment. You see, our hearts must be set apart for and belong to God exclusively. We must not let any other hope intrude, as the hymn writer puts it. We must find our satisfaction ultimately in him alone. And if we are content with God, if we're content with God, we will be content with his providence and with his provision. We will not seek satisfaction outside of God. We won't seek it in material things, especially in those things that belong to our neighbor. Please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Follow with me as I read the first 17 verses. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember this Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant 
or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And that's where we'll end our reading this morning. Well, I intend to preach a couple of messages on this 10th word this week and maybe we'll end next week. I'm not sure. We'll have to see. This morning, we're doing something of an introduction. We have three headings this morning. We'll consider introductory questions about the 10th commandment. Secondly, defining the sin forbidden in the 10th commandment. And then the relationship of the 10th commandment to the other commandments. And then come to a couple of words of concluding application. Let us first consider introductory questions about the 10th commandment. And the first question is this, what biblical words are translated covet and what do they teach? Well, the Hebrew word translated here covet, it means to desire, to delight, to take pleasure in. And this word is used both negatively and positively in the Old Testament. Positively, it's first used in Genesis 2 and verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing. There's our word that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's used positively there. Speak about these trees that God has provided for his people. But it's used negatively in the next chapter, chapter 3 and verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was here desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. In the New Testament and in the Greek Old Testament, the word translated covet is used similarly. It's used in a general sense, it's used in a good sense, and it's used in an evil sense. Generally, it's used of a strong impulse towards something, a desire to, to long for something. More specifically, it's used in a good sense of natural or commendable desire to long for, to earnestly desire. We have this word used twice in Luke 22 in verse 15. Literally, Jesus says, I have desired with desire to eat the Passover with you. But it's used in a bad sense of unrestricted desire for a forbidden person or thing to lust for to lust after, to crave, or to covet. Jesus uses this in Matthew chapter 5 to speak of lusting after a woman. The word covet, used as it is here in the 10th commandment, according to James Fisher's very helpful uh, shorter catechism explained, puts it this way. It refers to an excessive that is more than the bounds 
or an irregular, that is a perverted, desire after things that we do not have and which God in his providence does not see that it is meet or fitting that we should have. We want something God has not chosen to give us. And we're not happy until we get it. The Tenth Commandment is stated, like most of the other commandments, as a prohibition. But this prohibition, like all the vices forbidden in the Decalogue, imply our duty to practice the opposite virtues. We're not only not to kill, we're to do everything to promote life. We're not only not to fornicate or involve ourselves in adultery, we are to promote the sanctity and holiness of sex and the marriage union. And this commandment's no different. This last commandment, which forbids coveting, in other words, commands us to be content. Content is a rare commodity in the world. If you haven't noticed, maybe even in your own heart and experience, Second question, what are the sins forbidden and duties commanded in the 10th commandment? Now thus far, we have used the Westminster Larger Catechism's detailed exposition of the 10 commandments for our study guide. And if you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism in its exposition of the other commands, You'll just see how detailed it gets. But I find it interesting that the Westminster divines present a far more general general and summary treatment of the duties commanded and the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment than in all the previous commandments. But I believe a moment's reflection suggests the reason for their brevity. The 10th commandment more than any other, especially in the second table of the law, which focuses on our duty to our fellow men, addresses the heart. How are you going to give an exposition of the heart and contain it in one readable commandment in the Westminster Larger Catechism? You can't. The brethren, the heart is the spring of all of our thinking, all of our speech, all of our actions. That's why we're commanded in Proverbs 4 and verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence. Why? For from it flow the springs of life. It's the fountainhead of our whole life. The answers to the questions in the Westminster Larger Catechism's treatment of the 10th commandment focus upon the heart. Question 147, what are the duties required in the 10th commandment? Now listen for the heart here. The duties required in the 10th commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Further all that good which is his. But see, it rises out of the heart. Full contentment with our condition. Charitable frame of the whole soul. The inward motions of the heart 
and our affections touching him. See, it's a heart issue. And this, the commandment forbidding the sins addresses the heart as well. What are the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment? The sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontent with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. It's hard. It's a hard issue. The 10th commandment. We don't sin with our hands. We sin with our hearts. And if we sin in our hearts, it's often at least to sinning with our hands. The 10th commandment, perhaps more than any other, shines the searchlight of God's word upon our hearts. The breadth of application of this commandment is as breathtaking as its implications are overwhelming. The psalmist's statement in Psalm 119 anticipates the breadth of all of God's commandments, not the least the 10th commandment. Psalm 119 and verse 96, thy commandment is exceedingly broad. And we're going to see that as we seek to dissect the heart that is the root of the violations of this 10th word. Third question. Why do most Protestants have one commandment forbidding covetousness while Roman Catholics and Lutherans have two? Have you noticed that? Now, if you come out of Roman Catholicism or Lutheranism, perhaps you were taught a different numeration of the Ten Commandments. The listing in both have two commandments forbidding covetousness while ignoring God's command prohibiting the making, worshiping, and serving of idols. Their, num their numbering is as follows. First commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no strange gods before me. And then it skips to what we would we refer to as reformed as the third commandment. They have no commandment forbidding graven images. They go right from no strange gods to you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, etc. Down to Commandments 9 and 10 in their listing. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Commandment number 9. Commandment number 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's goods. Now, perhaps you're wondering, why do the Roman Catholics and Lutherans omit the commandment forbidding idols and divide the commandment forbidding covetousness into two separate commandments? Well, a plain answer... I've studied it. It's not easy to find. But I suspect that those are right who suggest that the Roman Catholic Church conveniently omitted the commandment forbidding the worship of graven images because it condemns their adoration of images of saints and angels, not to mention their worship of the elements of their blasphemous mass. To keep the numbering of the commandments to ten, to ten, because there's clearly ten commandments, they're called the ten commandments. The leaders of the Roman Catholic Church divided the command forbidding covetousness into two separate commandments. Now you might wonder, 
Well, why then do the Lutherans who do not worship images omit this clear prohibition and divide the 10th commandment themselves into two commandments? Well, the answer is pretty simple. They simply follow Martin Luther who adopted the Catholic church numbering. So how do I answer the Roman Catholic and the Lutheran who defend their numbering of the 10 commandments against the biblical and reformed numbering? Well, first, with an open Bible, kindly show them the plain prohibition against making images in Exodus chapter 20 and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. That it is one commandment and not two. Next, show them from Exodus 20 verse 17 and Deuteronomy 5 and verse 21 that the prohibition against coveting is one and the same prohibition. And though the details of what is forbidden are stated in different a different order they clearly constitute one commandment and i think you have this if you have the notes you have exodus 20:17 and deuteronomy 5:21 there and notice compare and contrast the two of them exodus 20 and verse 17 the original giving of the 10 commandments deuteronomy 5:21 is a repetition of it before they enter the promised land 40 years later you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Deuteronomy 5.21. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Back to 20.17. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Deuteronomy. You shall not desire your neighbor's house. You see, they're flipped. Then it goes on to forbid the coveting of this servant and donkey, etc., anything that belongs to your neighbor. Brethren, I suggest that dividing the single proscription, that is prohibition, against coveting into two commandments and omitting the prohibition, the clear prohibition, against image, images is not insignificant. We are warned in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 2, you shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor are you to take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Dividing the 10th commandment into two commandments is, it doesn't stand the test of scripture. But removing the second commandment that forbids idols that's a clear breach of this prohibition in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Furthermore, not, not surprisingly, the New Testament, no less than the Old, condemns both idolatry and covetousness. But I suggest to you that the New Testament goes further. The apostles equate covetousness with idolatry. They regard the covetous person as an idolater, Ephesians 5, 5 and Colossians 3, 5. They warn that no covetous person or idolater will enter the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 10. The apostles teach that idolatry and covetousness no longer characterize Christians. They've been saved from those sins. 
Paul makes this plain after listing these among the other sins that marked them before. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. And such were some of you. Some of you were covetous. Some of you were idolaters, as well as a whole litany of sins in verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. I'm sorry, we cannot escape the implications of the second commandment by dividing the tenth into two. So what is the connection between covetousness and idolatry? Covetousness and idolatry are their Siamese twins joined at the heart. You see, what the heart covets, it worships. And what it worships, it makes its portion. And this is what Eve did in the garden. She coveted the forbidden fruit, the eating of which the devil promised would make her what? Like God. She made the forbidden fruit, you see, her portion. She made it her God. So let us be warned, brethren. When we make anything our portion other than God, we become guilty of idolatry. Calvin has famously observed that the human heart is an idol factory. Not I-D-L-E-I-D-O-L. We make idols in our hearts. And we must not think idols are merely physical representations of God or of false gods only. That doesn't really go to the heart of idolatry. That's the hand of idolatry, not its heart. <laughs> whatever we believe we must have to make our life worth living is an idol and that is what we will covet let me descend to particulars we may worship our work and covet recognition and promotion we may worship money and covet financial success and a comfortable retirement. We may make gods of our spouse or of having a spouse. We may worship at the altar of our families, make a god of persons of the opposite sex, worship our bodies, our freedom, and covet whatever tends to realize the blessings promised to us by those gods. We must realize that such gifts and aspirations are not necessarily evil in themselves, but they become gods when they come between us and worshiping and serving the living God alone. Our portion must be entirely in him and from him. So those are some introductory questions about the 10th commandment. Notice secondly, defining the sin forbidden in the 10th commandment. We saw that Fisher's Catechism defines the 10th commandment in these words. Covetousness is an excessive and irregular desire after those worldly goods which we have not and which God in his providence does not see meet that we should have. 
You see, when we boil the 10th commandment down to its essence, we are commanded to be content with what we have and not discontent with what we don't have. If we are happy with God, and brethren, this is the bottom line. If we are happy with God, we will be happy no matter what we may lack. You see, if he is our all in all, we may say with the imprisoned apostle what he wrote in Philippians 4 verses 11 through 13. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. And he had more of the former than the latter. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. You see, this is a heart secret he's talking about here. Both of having an abundance or having abundance and suffering need. Now, how can he do this? How could he have this perspective on having much or little? And it really didn't matter ultimately to Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You see, Christ was on the altar of Paul's heart. And therefore, the circumstances of providence didn't matter in the final analysis. We have to learn this too. Paul says he learned it twice. And grace teaches what the world cannot teach. You see, Paul could be content in all situations since he had settled the question of the meaning of life. Christ was his strength. And since his life was bound up in his Lord, Paul viewed every twist and turn of providence through that lens. You see, dear people, if we are not happy with God, we will never be content, no matter our situation. How could Paul say that? Because he says in another place, for me to live, what? Is Christ. And therefore, even to die is gain. Do we have those balances in our thinking? And this fact is all the more significant. Remember, Paul says he had to learn contentment. That before Paul was converted, covetousness, he says, was his darling and defining sin. He didn't begin to learn contentment until the Lord brought home the 10th commandment to his heart with convicting and converting power. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 9. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting. Yes, he knew about coveting. He knew it was the 10th commandment. He knew the, knew the prohibition against it. But he didn't know it with converting power until the Spirit of God brought it home to his heart. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. 
For apart from the law, sin is dead. Thank God for the Ten Commandments. And I was once alive apart from the law. Ah, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Brethren, since this sin is rooted so deeply in our hearts and its influence is so subtle over us, even after conversion, we will be fighting it until the day that we die. Thirdly, consider the relationship of the Ten Commandments or the Tenth Commandment to the other commandments. I suggest to you that the Tenth Commandment casts a long dark shadow over all the other commandments. We've seen that that the last of the Ten Commandments brings us full circle and joins hands with the First Commandment. We've seen that the Bible associates covetousness, which is idolatry, which is prohibited in the First and Second Commandments. Further, covetousness will excite an irreverent use of God's name. When we can't get what we want, we'll cuss God. And it will promote desecration of the Sabbath. Violations of the Third and Fourth Commandments. We may break the Fifth Commandment by coveting the just authority that others have over us. The rebellion of Korah was grounded in their lust for Moses' authority. They wanted to depose Moses and take his place. Violation of the Tenth Commandment may excite murder, killing those who have what we want. James speaks of those who lust and do not have, so they commit murder. Covetousness is obviously a motive behind fornication and adultery. Violation of the Tenth Commandment lies behind theft. We want what someone else has and we take it from them. Achan first coveted and then took what God had forbidden. Ahab not only coveted Naboth's vineyard, but killed him to obtain it. Coveting a respected name may lead us to defame another's good name or to tell a lie, both that are violations of the Ninth Commandment. Professing Christians broke this law, seeking to defame and to harm the imprisoned apostle by their misrepresentations of him. He speaks of this in Philippi, in the Philippian epistle. Well, this is where we're going to leave off today. God willing, we'll pick up next week and attempt the impossible to plumb something of the practical depths of this commandment. But let me leave you with a couple of words of concluding application. First of all, behold the subtle power of covetousness. Oh, the power is subtle. The worldly atmosphere we breathe excites the sin of covetousness. We're often covetous and we don't even realize it. One man said that as a priest, he said he's had all manner of sins confessed to him except for the sin of covetousness. 
Brethren, temptations abound all around. The advertising industry gets rich, exciting our discontentment. You have to have this in order to be happy, be thoroughly furnished in this world. You have to buy our product. How have you got along without it? You really get along with it. And the devil knows our covetous hearts. He whispers in our ear what he whispered in Eve's, that God is not good, that you deserve more than what you have. Listen to the advertisement. You deserve a break today. You deserve this. You deserve that. It feeds upon our natural discontentment. So he whispers that God is not good, that you deserve more than you have, that God's law stands between you and true happiness. And dear people, we're all too ready to heed his, his. In fact, what is a complaining spirit but one common evil fruit of covetousness? Things just ain't going my way and I'm not happy about it. We think we deserve better than what God provides. And how quickly we will defend our grumbling and complaining. So let me ask you, what do you think that you have to have to be happy? Do you think you will be truly happy and content once you have and you fill in the blank? If I only had this, I would be happy. Well, let me ask you, have you ever said that in the past? If I only had this, I would be happy. And now that you have it, you're asking about something else. If I only had this, I would be happy. Do you envy the prosperity of others? Do you want what they have? And let me ask you this. Would you take it from them if you could get away with it? Behold the subtle power of covetousness. Secondly, God has given the preaching of his word to expose our covetousness. God's law exposed Paul's covetous heart. So did the ministry of the word for Asaph. The psalmist speaks for countless Christians who find themselves coveting the wealth of the world. Why don't I have it too? The sanctuary is where we need to have our hearts examined by the searchlight of God's word. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. I don't want to be with them. No more. I wanted to have what they have. Not anymore. I'm happy to have what God gives me. Contentment isn't getting what you want. Contentment is being happy with what you have. 
Brethren, covetousness is madness. Thomas Watson may be right. The sin of covetousness is the most hard to root out. I think that's why it shakes hands with the first commandment. Because we make an idol of things and it's hard to root those things out of our heart. We can't only by the grace of God, but it takes continual spade work. We are in our right mind only when God is our portion and we are fully content with him. We need regularly to have our eyes open to the presence of this foul sin within our hearts. Lord, take your word, search my heart to its dirty depths and expose this sin within me and give me the grace to repent of it. Oh, may we echo Asaph's testimony if we would be happy worshiping and a witnessing people. I close with his words. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And beside thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all thy works. There's the witnessing aspect of it. When we're a content people, we want to tell others about the God from whom all blessings flow. Let's pray. Our Father, how can we come to your word and not be found out and exposed by that word? which searches us, the division between thought and spirit, joint marrow judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So Lord, if we're in our right mind, we'd gladly cast ourselves at your feet and say, Lord, show me yourself from your word. Give me the grace to repent of those things that I put between me and you, those things that I thought would be happy, make me happy. Indeed, I've dug cisterns, empty cisterns, which can hold no water. I have forsaken you in the way of faith. Lord, turn my attention back to Jesus Christ, from whose belly flows rivers of living water, that I might have his water flowing out of me. Lord, fill me to the gill with the waters of life, that I might tell of all your kindness. In goodness. Forgive me where I betrayed my generation because of my discontented lips, and rather open my mouth to speak of thy praise, which is new every day. Great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.